KCF Technologies presents Industrial Transformation, Stories of Failure and Success from the Front Lines of American Manufacturing. Welcome to the Industrial Transformation Podcast, where we will be discussing stories of failure and success from the front lines of American manufacturing. I'm Marty Wolf, and with me today is the host of the Industrial Transformation Podcast, Jeremy Frank. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? Hi again, Marty. Great to talk with you. Yeah, Jeremy is the CEO of KCF Technologies. And uh, so, Jeremy, here we are. We're back for another informative podcast. What would you like to tell us about it? Or maybe you'd like to introduce our guest. I'd like to do both, Marty. Yeah, great to be back again. As I'm sure you recall, last week we were speaking with Lorne Poindexter of Amaran Corporation, who is an expert in the nuclear industry. We are going to be continuing with that theme this week and talking with Jason Babick, who is currently in his role as Vice President of Global Strategy at the Westinghouse Electric Company. And I'll say just a word. I'd like to introduce Jason, and uh, but also a bit about Westinghouse. You know, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Westinghouse is a pretty legendary company in Western Pennsylvania. Long, uh, long history. George Westinghouse founded the company way back in 1886, and you know, I don't, I don't know if a lot of people are, are this way, but growing up, some of my my heroes were were actually. Um, Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla. And there's just one of the epic engineering slash business battles of all time played out between those guys and George Westinghouse. And it's just a fascinating piece of American history in industry. In addition to that, though, my grandfather, Clayton Frank, was a Westinghouse employee his whole life. He actually worked at union at a, as a union uh, laborer at the Westinghouse Appliance Factory in Mansfield, Ohio. Uh, for his for his whole life through about the 70s when I was born. So suffice it to say, Westinghouse, uh, it just holds a special place in my heart. But the Westinghouse of today is very different than your grandfather's Westinghouse. And uh, Jason is going to tell us about that. And, you know, so Jason has a, his, his uh, education is from Penn State. We actually were at Penn State at the same time in the early 90s, although I was on the west side of campus with the engineers while Jason was over on the east side of campus with the finance and the business people and all the cool kids. And from then till now, he's had a, a very diverse set of corporate roles in finance, strategy, and innovation in the energy and also the telecom industry at Lucent Technologies, KPMG, Direct Energy, and Westinghouse. And now is back for his new stint at Westinghouse in this role as global uh, strategy vice president. So I would just like to say welcome, Jason. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, thanks for that, that introduction. Yeah, I think, um, I think that when I started out, out of school in accounting and finance, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to do something in business. So. I remember talking with you and you wanted to do something important and, and it's great to see that you're doing that. Um, so I think that from the very beginning, we both wanted to make a, an impact on this world and accounting isn't necessarily the most impactful place to start, but we, I gave it a go. And 
but I, what I wanted to do with accounting and finance was um, improve the performance of a company and change companies by uh, driving that financial discipline and whatnot. And I, I, I started out in finance, but I ended up in strategy and mergers and acquisitions. And I kind of migrated from the technology space into the energy sector. Um, I think at the end of the day, we, 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 we both found a place where we could ultimately work together again, which is really gratifying. So thanks for having me on the show and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, likewise, absolutely. And it, it is just, it, it's really fun to be sort of hashing out these future oriented discussions about the nuclear industry and the ener energy industry uh, in total with someone I've known for a long time. So it's just fun. Can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about just your personal background and especially how you ended up at Westinghouse? What drove you there? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I, I've been in this strategy game for quite a while, really starting out in M&A after some time on Wall Street at Credit Suisse. And I, I thought the best way to change a company is quickly <laughs> and with acquisitions and doing some things that ultimately companies needed to do to be a part of the solution for their industry. Um, so coming to Westinghouse, I'm a Pittsburgh guy too. I grew up in the shadow of Westinghouse in Monroeville. And, um, you know, I was a, an admirer too. And when the opportunity kind of came up to join the, such a legendary company, I, I jumped at it. And, and I've been at a lot of companies when you're in strategy and M&A, you, you tend to, to do that. But this company, given its legacy and its lineage, is has competitive advantages that are just second to none. And, and I've worked at Bell Labs and you know, I think that this is, this is on par with some of the, the, the background and understanding and knowledge in-house. And, and that's been really impressive and fun to be a part of. That's great. Is there anything particularly notable that you'd like to highlight in, in the context of M&A and your role at Westinghouse that you're particularly proud of? You know, I've been at Westinghouse twice now. I was there from 2009 up until um, the bankruptcy. And, and, and I left to kind of uh, get into a place where strategy and M&A was more front and center. And um, since that time, you know, we weren't doing a ton on the M&A or strategy front back then in my previous role. But since I've been back, um, you know, we've been... You know, we're private equity owned now, which is a, a totally different uh, mentality. There's incredible financial discipline and, and, you know, it's an industry that's ripe for consolidation. It's a mature industry. Um, there is, you know, high barriers to entry and we have the ability to kind of drive innovation through uh, consolidation in some ways. So since I've been back and it's just been over a year, um, you know, we've, we've bought the Rolls-Royce Nuclear Group. Um, we've bought a, a, a nuclear services company in, in Canada. You know, we've, been, we've been on a bit of a tear and, and the hits will kind of keep coming. And, and I think the thing that is really gratifying is that it's, it's, it's coming together and building something. It's a one plus one, three scenario. And that's always that's always the, the, the best scenarios for us. So it's been really fun to you know, be working with the team from Rolls-Royce. 
They brought a lot of expertise in digitization and plant computers, things like that. Um, and between our relationships and expertise and their relationships and expertise, we can really um, do something special in the future. That's great. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate the color. Well, I'm curious, just if, if we go back a little bit, you know, it because this is your second stint at Westinghouse, but you've been in the energy sector for a while now. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could just share some about how the just the energy industry, the energy market has evolved during during uh, your career that you've spent uh, focused and working in it. Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating how fast change is happening in the energy space compared to the previous, say, 30, 40 years. In the past decade, since I started at Westinghouse the first time, back then gas was at eight or nine dollars a BTU. Now it's at you know a dollar fifty, maybe could crack two dollars on a on a on a good day, but not likely. Um Nuclear was the cheapest game in town you know, over a decade ago. Now, you know, solar, you know, back then solar and wind was kind of in the single digits in terms of percentage, you know, and now you're in that, you're in a totally different world. And the, the new benchmark from a cost perspective is really renew, renewables and storage. Um, while it's not a baseload technology, I think storage has been able to help if not you know, completely offset some of the shortcomings that they've had. So you know, the, between the gasification of the U.S. economy and renewables, it's just been a, an epic change in the way that the grid is laid out and, and the way the economics kind of play out. So you know, I think the other thing that's been fascinating because you know, I spent some time in retail energy as well is watching demand. Um, you would think that with data centers and electric vehicles and everyone's got, you know, a couple of cell phones and a, a, an iPad anymore, it seems like. And you, you would think that demand just is going through the roof and it's, and it's not. It's not because things are, are much more efficient. You know, your refrigerator is more efficient. Your dishwasher is more efficient. The data centers are six times the size they were a decade ago, and they're using just a couple percentages more in terms of total power. So the technology involved in, in managing that is just, it's just astonishing. Yeah, so, I appreciate that. I mean, that's something that we're very plugged into. I mean, on a couple fronts, I, the, on the gas side, you know, we're, KCF is actually a big part of how those the, the gas extractors continue to do it more and more effectively you know just driving efficiencies on the on the upstream side with between hydraulic fracturing and gathering and you know some of these pittsburgh companies uh cnx console and eqt they're these are companies we work with on the industrial side too it all fits together just driving those industrial efficiencies with with uh, electric systems you know pumps and motor driven systems it's um it is a fascinating story that not enough people know about so i appreciate you uh highlighting that for us I, maybe, maybe a, a good thing to talk about next because you know because most people don't see it, they don't see what happens with a, you know a, a large industrial pump or fan that consumes hundreds of thousands of dollars of of energy per year. I mean that, those are the kind of things that would just blow people's mind. I think, but what we can all relate to is um, is what uh, you know what we can see in our daily lives. You know what at a consumer level. 
I'm just curious if you could talk about some, you know, what, what are individuals doing to be a part of that and to reduce their energy bills? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a great question. I mean, if you think just about um, furnaces and appliances uh, down to LEDs, your, your smart thermostat on your wall um, is incredibly effective on help, even if it's just programmable, is incredibly helping you, effective in helping you manage your bill and doing what's good for the grid. You know, more and more, you know, we have time of use charges. Um, one of the things that the U.S. has that I think is quite unparalleled on a global basis is a deregulated market where we can drive the right behaviors by, um, you know, evolutions in market dynamics like time of use charges. So, you know, if your utility asks you to kind of turn down your AC at a specific time, that doesn't happen in a lot of markets. And as you mentioned on the business side, businesses are acutely aware of the, the cost of energy for running their business. And it's a growing component of their operational costs. So between distributed generation and smart buildings, everybody's looking for ways to improve the efficiency of their operations. And, um, and it's increased, it's, it's easier and easier every year to do so with, with um, controls and uh, and uh, the right incentives in the marketplace to drive down those energy bills, um, and I think that's um, that's been a, a real catalyst for keeping that demand at a steady pace and and doing what they can to match it to the supply side of the, the equation. So it's an evolution, but it's um, it's a fun one to be a part of. Yeah, it's very interesting. I- I'm curious, just a little follow-up. I, I believe you spent some time over in Europe. Why do you think it is that you know those differences exist? Is, is it the government? Is it society? Is it the way companies are structured, like that the that the markets are are behaving differently on on the supply and demand energy balance? Um, I think there's a couple things. I, I mean, I yeah, I uh, I think that generally, first of all, there's there's a much stronger you know carbon mandate. On you know, on the other side of the pond, if you will, um, there's a strong commitment to the Paris Accord um, and and efficiency in general. Um, but but from a regulatory perspective, it's just in the early stages of evolving within a country as opposed to across borders. So you know, energy does move freely and and it can move across borders. Um, but regulations you know, tends to stay relatively sovereign, and, and and I think that it's it's much more difficult to 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 kind of balance between countries and within a country as well. But if you look at a company or a country like Spain, um, obviously a, a great candidate for solar, a great candidate for renewables, but a strong commitment to carbon and, and nuclear. So. You know they're they're quite far along in, in in incentivizing the right type of behaviors, so it, it's a, it's a bit more fragmented, so it's hard to harmonize policy, um, but it's it's something that they're continuing to work on. Um, in the U.S., PJM is 14 states in the northeast of the U.S., and you know, that's the largest deregulated market in the world, and it's only a handful of states in the northeast real part of the state. You know, it excludes New England and New York. So um, 
it's it, it is a uh, it's it's relatively unique here, and I think that they and it and it drives down the price of power. So it's been I think good for consumers and suppliers. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. So you touched on nuclear a little bit in the context of Spain, and I know I mean you know we're servicing some nuclear plants, and there's some nuclear plants right here in our footprint. Um, you know, within PJM, you, we're we're talking here from Pennsylvania. Uh, well, in Maryland, I suppose, in your case, the, um, you know, last year, I, I mean, last, last uh, interview, I believe you got a chance to hear Lauren Poindexter's points of view from Amarin at, at Amarin Callaway in Missouri. And, and he talked a little bit about Amarin's relationship with Westinghouse. I'm curious to hear from your point of view, you know, in the context of nuclear and in the context of Westinghouse, what is Westinghouse doing to help be a part of that solution and help customers help. So, you know, your customers like Amarin drive better economics and ultimately drive, you know, a lower energy price to the consumer. Yeah. It's a, it was, it was great to listen to Lauren last week. And yeah, I think that um, the one takeaway I would have is, you know, from a nuclear perspective, increasingly, you know, we're all in this together. It is, it is, Customers, vendors, we all want the plants to stay open. We all want them to make as much money as possible. Um, and we all know that the long-term operations and sustainability of those plants is first and foremost to everyone in the industry. Um, so we are doing everything we can to efficiently conduct the outages for when we refuel. Um, we're investing in digitization for optimizing those and if you think about an outage, if you can shave a day off of an outage, that's an entire day of revenue that they put in their pocket versus sitting there idle. So, and of course, we get more work if we can help them succeed. So, you know, digitization, you know, we're doing something called We Connect Now, which is a helmet that's got a, a, you know, a camera on it that is constantly tracing where folks are going. Um, it, it improves the efficiency that we can study over time to, to put into an algorithm to, to shave um, time off of those outages. And now, you know, even with COVID, if you have a, a situation where you find someone that, that was exposed to, to COVID, you can trace that. And so, you know, it's, it's actually gotten a bit more of a, of a side benefit for that capability today. So um, it, it's really um, kind of a study and optimization as much as anything else. It's fascinating. I wonder if you could talk a bit to the thing. So, you know, Lauren talked a bit about what our company, you know, what KCF's doing at, at Amaran. And, and mm-hmm. there, you know, we've had some discussions about how that can interface with Westinghouse and and you know specifically tending to the needs of the machines. I'm I'm curious if you could talk about the predictive strategy yeah. a bit. So if you think about a nuclear power plant, how many what the potential is for spare parts. So if KCF is monitoring yeah, a piece of equipment and, and they want to be ready for that predictive maintenance cycle, um, the the company that we bought with our Rolls-Royce, one of the companies is part of that suite of companies from Rolls-Royce that we bought, um, manages a platform that understands where spare parts are really across the country for all the nuclear power plants. So if you have a, 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 a piece of machinery that 
um, is suggesting that you should attend to it sooner rather than later, um, rather than have two or three of those parts on hand, um, we can help to optimize that uh, spare parts management, for example. And instead of having tens of million dollars of inventory of spare parts, you could, you could reduce that again. And then, you know, in the future, you could predict and op- predict something's going to go out and, and figure out who else might have, we could help you figure out who else might have those parts, if we have it, if, if another plant has it, if another vendor has it, and just you know, really optimize that solution. And it just makes the whole nuclear industry more efficient. Yeah, I, I, I get it. You know, it's interesting because it's all, it's really all fueled by proactive rather than reactive data. And that's what Lauren talked about. You know, what they're really doing is using technology to generate proactive information, you know, which, how, which motor is going to last for how long, which pump is wearing out, which one is being subjected to adverse conditions. And then you can plug that into Westinghouse and start to figure out what to do about it. I, it definitely paints a, a, a rosy picture for optimization. Well, I'm, I'm curious if you look a little further into the future. I, I, I don't know. I tend to think 10 years is a, is a nice time. Uh, but, I'll, you know, take the future as long as you want. You go to 2050, 2025, or um, I'm, I'm just curious for nuclear specifically. You know, again, nuclear is just a fascinating industry for me because it has so much promise, but it's also very complex from a societal standpoint. And, you know, you look at Germany and France and, and Spain and Japan, everybody has a very different adoption uh, of nuclear in the past and the future. Maybe we start with the U.S. I'm just curious, what do you think about the future for nuclear in the U.S. and then maybe globally? Yeah, so the the dynamics between the U.S. and Europe are, you know, in a lot of ways, very similar. Uh, They adopted nuclear as a baseload technology back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, and those plants will start to reach end of life, um, but they're fully depreciated, well-functioning, well-designed plants, and um, we can keep those open. And you know, it, it, of course, we're going to do so safely, and we're going to do so um, when it, the economics makes sense. So you know, there is a shutdown coming, though, and that pulls a lot of baseload power off of the grid, as well as a lot of carbon-free power off of the grid. So it's in everybody's interest to kind of do what you can to, to, to make the most of, of those, those plants and then continue to invest in future generations of, of both carbon-free generation, either from nuclear, renewable storage, et cetera. You know, in Asia, Eastern Europe, India, and developing markets, I mean, that are really you know, a few decades behind, that are deploying these you know, very large plants. Westinghouse can play in those markets, of course, um, but a lot of those are domestic suppliers where we can support those as well. So you know, we have nuclear plants being developed and being built in the US today, um, you know, particularly in the Southeast. Um, we're a part of uh, the growth from other vendors' plants as well as our own reactors, the AP-1000, our flagship plant uh, that is you know, deployed in, in China uh, and has opportunities you know, both in the, uh, in the Middle East and, and, and Eastern Europe as well. So 
I think the current generation of three and uh, generation three and generation three plus light water reactors continue to provide uh, a stable base load capacity. But then when we think about Gen 4, you know, the economics can be much better, but they still require significant investment in you know, material science and power conversion, uh, not to mention the fact that you're licensing something that's never been licensed before is um, an arduous task and will cost time and money and is a, is a long process that needs to be done um, well. And, and when it's done, then you, know, you kind of get into the, again, the next generation of, of baseload nuclear that can be a, a game changer. But it's going to take investment, and it and it needs to you know, really start today. And maybe last question before we start wrapping up on that: When do you think uh, that's something Lauren talked about? But it's just his personal opinion. What's your personal opinion? When do you think that kicks in? Like, when do you think Gen Four realistically becomes a part of our, you know, real life activities? Well, you know, I think it's going to continue to. It's still going to be um, years in the future. Um, we're spending a, a lot of time and resources on you know, uh, kind of a hybrid Gen 4 micro-reactor that it has a very specific application for both uh, government, military, and um, applications like you know, fishing villages, you know, mining applications, those types of things. It's a handful of megawatts. Um, but you know, we're investing a good bit of time and energy you know, along with the, the U.S. government to bring that to market. But again, it's still a few years away. But that eVinci, DVinci platform that we call it is, um, is something that we're really excited about as a game changer. Okay, cool. Appreciate that. Hey, I, uh, we're, we're just about out of time, Jason. I just want to start wrapping up. And I, um, I've actually, I, I uh, have... Three questions I want to ask you that as we as we carry this industrial transformation series forward, I'm going to just try to be consistent and capture these questions because I think they're kind of broadly relevant. As a matter of fact, they came from my wife, Amy. Um, and, uh, and so therefore, they're they're very wise. And the, the first question is just not so much just strictly to Westinghouse or even nuclear industry or your career, but what problem that's facing our country and or the world is most concerning to you right now? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question, and I uh, I think the best analogy for it is you know, this phenomena that is commonly referred to, I think, in fiscal policy as "fool in the shower." Um, when you overcompensate one way or another with a short term end in mind, if you think about being in the shower and you turn it all the way hot, and then it's too hot, and you turn it all the way cold, and it's too cold, and you know, that kind of pendulum swing back and forth for the short-term result is, is somewhat concerning in the way that the world is kind of looking at the economy, how it's looking at coronavirus, as it looks at a lot of different issues. That short-term focus is, you know, something that I'd, I'd like the world to kind of think more for the long term. So it's probably good that I'm a strategy guy in a nuclear company <laughs> because that's about <laughs> as long term as it gets. But um, you're, you're, you see it, you know, like I said, you see it with coronavirus and whatnot and things open up and then they're everything shutting down and back and forth and back and forth. That's 
something I'd like to see less of if possible. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, it's funny in engineering, the, that exists in several ways in engineering too. On vehicles, like if uh, on a vehicle design, I spend a lot of time in like vehicle dynamics. It's called oversteer. Like you turn the steering wheel and the vehicle turns more than you want it to. If you look at it on in like controls for either like vibration or electronics, it's just, it's like a poorly performing feedback loop. But it, uh, yeah, same thing in finance, politics, society. It's all sort of the same, which by the way, is something that Nikola Tesla talked about a lot. That's why I use my hero. Um, <laughs> um, what the second question so just imagine we start solving some of these problems. We get it right. We, we deal with the problems more gradually, more long-term. What do you think the world can be like in 2030? Like what, what dream could you lay out from what you see? Yeah, so yeah, again, 2030 is a little too close. Uh, I mean, thinking 2040, 2050, and kind of thinking about energy space, um, you know, we have the ability to methodically move down the path towards a green, carbon-free, renewable, economical grid. And, and a stable grid that is economical is good for everybody. I mean, it, it's good for industry and consumers, and it's just responsible. Um, you know, the U.S. is fortunate enough to you know, be early in the development cycle. Um, and so if we can you know, maintain and grow the, the carbon-free and stable grid that we have today, um, that would be pretty awesome. I'd love to see, I'd love to see the carbon footprint continue to decrease as much as possible and the move away from fossil plants. And it might sound selfish, but I'm a, I'm a lifetime green, uh, I'm a lifetime Sierra Club member. So, you know, I think I'm allowed to say it, so. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. And, I, but yeah, hope, I wish it can happen by 2030, but yeah, 2050, what, you know, it's a, it's a long time, but it's also not that long, you right. know, even 2050, but it, uh, it seems like a long time away. So it's just, it's just about the pace of change. Yep. So last question. I'm curious, this is more just personal for you. It's a question I love to ask people. What, um, can you share with us something that you personally know to be true, but, but that most people either aren't aware of or don't agree with, with you on? Yeah, so I'll try to keep this uh, apolitical, if you will. But <laughs> yeah, I think that um, something that I know to be true um, and maybe folks don't agree with me, but you know, globalization and and world trade is is a good thing for everyone. And you know, diversity, it's as long as we're all playing by the same rules, global trade's a good thing. Um, and and I think that you know, we're we're in a role in a world that becomes you know a little bit more populous, and you know our country and and whatnot. And I think that we could you know, maybe do that, maybe, maybe a step back and think about everyone dusting off their old macroeconomics book and just reading a few chapters to remember that, you know, that's a good thing. And, and, you know, the connections with other countries and diversity from other countries is, is our friend, not our enemy. And, and um, it makes us all better. Yeah, I appreciate that. 
you know, there's a book called uh, Factfulness that's one of my favorites that I think explores those topics from a, a pretty simple macroeconomic and just societal level. But that's yeah, I appreciate the, I appreciate your perspective on that. That well, that's um, I think that's all the time we have, Jason. I, I um, I really appreciate you spending the time to talk with me today on the Industrial Transformation Podcast. Do you have any any last uh, comments to share, or just uh, uh, before we wrap up? No, I just wanted to say thank you. This was a lot of fun, and um, you know I appreciate the time and, and interest. Fantastic. So this has been our conversation with Jason Babick, the Vice President of Global Strategy at Westinghouse Electric Company. I am Jeremy Frank, the CEO of KCF Technologies, and this is the Industrial Transformation Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Industrial Transformation Podcast, a production of Business Builders Media. Learn more about how KCF can help you on your industrial transformation journey at kcftech.com. And check out more shows on businessbuildersmedia.com.